invite you this morning to make your way in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, book of Genesis, Genesis chapter number three, Genesis chapter number three is where we're going to find our text for this morning, and um, we're going to be looking at verse one down through verse number 11, we'll consider some further passages, uh, further verses in the chapter as well. Um, but Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 through 11, I've titled the message, Where Are You, Adam? Where are you, Adam? And really, it's going to be more pointed down to putting your own name there in Adam's place. Where are you? And you will see what I'm talking about as we come through this text. And uh, I pray that it will benefit us and uh, encourage us and point us to Christ and the glorious gospel uh, of Jesus Notice with me in our text, we read, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Have you ever considered where you are? You say, Preacher, that's a silly question. You know where I'm at. You can see me. I'm sitting in a church house, right? This is where I'm at. Well, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about... Where are you in relation to God? Where are you spiritually in your life? Where are you standing with God? That's the question. This is really the most important question for us. It is a question that we see in the very beginning with the first man and woman. God comes into the Garden of Eden and calls out the question to Adam and Eve, Where are you? Where was Adam? You see, where Adam was and where Adam came to be gives us really a bigger picture of all of humanity, a picture that leads us into the gospel of our own salvation. And did you know that the Bible really is a message that tells mankind where he was, where he is, and where he needs to be? The Scriptures are God's revelation to mankind that show us who we are, that show us our God, the Creator, whom we have forsaken. Show us where exactly it is that we need to be that we're not, and even how to get there. 
So where is mankind without his creator, without his God? Mankind is lost. Mankind is lost. Mankind is traveling the road of life in the wilderness of sin headed for his own destruction. And before one can be on the right road, they first need to recognize what? That they're on the wrong road. (laughs) That they're in the wrong place to see where they need to truly be. You know, one of the great blessings of technology today is having a GPS right on your cell phone, isn't it? How many of us are thankful for that little device and tool? I don't know how many in the generation before me did it without that. I give you all props. I remember I was telling our Sunday school class, I remember my dad taking us on vacation and having a big atlas out, right, and mapping out the turns and how much further we got to go and printing out the directions on MapQuest and all those good old things. But even GPSs can kind of make you a little nervous. A few years ago, Beth and I were traveling into Nashville, and we put in our location we were heading, and this GPS was taking us to this destination, but... Man, it took us back some country roads, and I thought, we are lost. This thing don't know what it's doing. <laughs> some of those roads were barely developed. I was quite getting, getting a little nervous about that. So I started thinking, where in the world are we? Where are we going? Are we on the right road? And, and, and so thankfully, you know, we can look at a GPS and kind of see where we are and where it's going and look at the bigger picture of how it's going to get us there, even though sometimes it's a little sketchy uh, uh, for us. And, and that's essentially what the Bible does for us in a way. Today in your Bible, we're going back into the beginning to find out where we are and really where we need to be as mortal beings, as humans. We're going to see this from the very first man and woman, how they came to be apart from God and how, how and why God comes into the garden and asks this question to Adam and Eve, where are you? Why does he ask him this? What does this mean? And I want you to see that this really is a pointed pointed question for all of us here today. Where are you in relation to God? Notice with me in our notes this morning, I want you to see number one. We see the sin of mankind. We see the sin of mankind. And I want to point out two things about his sin. That mankind, firstly, is fallen in his sin. Mankind, as we look at this text, is fallen in his sin. Now, in order to know that he is fallen, you, might, you must consider, what has he fallen from? Where was he that caused him to, that, that, to where he fell from in the beginning? Now, to read Genesis 1 and 2 and to ponder upon the era of time, that typical era of time in Genesis 1 and 2, it is a wonderful thing to meditate on and just to think about. You see, God had created the world in which He declared His own holy approval of it. In Genesis 1, in verse number 31, God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was what? Very good. Very good. Now, when God says something is very good, you know that it is very good. It's not just a little good, but it is very good. He says the evening and the morning was the sixth day. You see, the world in this state after creation was beautiful and marvelous, far beyond even what it is today. Now, we can look at certain areas of the world and think, man, that's such a beautiful display of God's creation. But can you imagine God's creation without the curse of sin upon it? How beautiful this must have been. How marvelous it must have been. 
But this understand, when God says it's very good, this not only included creation, as in the earth and the oceans and the animals and the skies and the moon and the sun and the stars. This also includes mankind in his original state. We read about man in his created state in Genesis 1.27. The Bible tells us God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Isn't that a wonderful statement? Isn't that something to cherish? That you and I, as, as God's creation, as mankind created, as man is the crown of God's creation. Not dogs, not cats. Not horses, mankind is the crown of God's creation. Not only was man created in God's image, but man also was created in a state of what I would call a state of innocence. A state of innocence. This means that man did not know what evil was. He had never experienced sin. He had never seen sin. It was an entirely foreign thing to him. Man in his original created state was indeed righteous, free of all forms of corruption. Thomas Boston, a preacher many years ago, said this, Man was made right, agreeable to the nature of God, whose work is perfect, without any imperfection, corruption, or principle of corruption in his body or soul. And that is the state of man before our text that we come to. In such a state, both Adam and Eve enjoyed a harmonious fellowship with their Creator. A fellowship with God that was unbroken, untainted, unhindered by anything. A perfect fellowship with a perfect God in a perfect world. You realize, Christian, that in Christ and what we know of our future, that's what we're looking forward to in the very end. And I'll point a little bit about that later. But just ponder and think about it. Their communion with God was unbroken. Beyond our imagination, it is is a glorious thought to ponder of man in his original state. But what do we read of in our text today? We read of man's fall from his righteous and innocent state in which he was created. Now, Solomon in his wisdom summarizes this event this way. We saw this Wednesday in our Ecclesiastes study. Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 29. He says, See this alone I found, that God made man upright. That's how he created him. He created him upright. But they have sought out many schemes. You see, this presents the big picture. We often hear of this phrase or statement, the fall of man, the fall of man. You hear this in Christian circles and in theology and and Bible study. That begs the question, what did man fall from? And to what did man fall into? The answer is seen right here. He fell from a state of being upright before God What did he fall into? He fell into a state of sinful depravity, which is characterized and and seen by example in this text before us. And I will show you that. 
But we think about this fall. How could he fall from such a glorious state? We see from this passage and the preceding passages that Adam and Eve, in their innocent state, understand this, that they had a free will to do whatsoever they pleased in that innocent state. They did not yet have a binding inclination towards sin. Now, we often hear of the term free will. But we must understand in the truest sense of what that means, the only people who had true free will were Adam and Eve in the very beginning. You say, well, what about us today? We most certainly have a will, and God has given it to us to use it as we please. I chose to put on this outfit because Bethany picked it out for me. (laughs) It was my free will to follow her direction, (laughs) right? I made that choice. She made that choice. Every day, you get up and make your own choices. But when we look at the matter of the will in the theological sense of what the Bible teaches, our will is bound to the influence of our fallen and sinful nature. It is not possible for me to eradicate my sinful nature and be righteous again or do good again. It's not possible for me to act outside of that. Jesus said in John 8, 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Every human being in this world is a slave to their own sinful nature. They think within that realm. They live within that realm. They talk within that realm. They they act within that realm. And Adam and Eve understand yet to know sin and not being bound by sin and their will yet... God set before them a clear command in which they were to obey to please Him and continue in perfect fellowship with Him. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15 through 17. Look at this original command from God with me. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15 through 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, You shall surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That's the one command God has given them. That's that's the one law God has laid out. Don't touch this tree. Do not eat. Don't eat this forbidden fruit. You've got all the rest, but leave this one alone. Well, that brings us to our text. What do we see in Genesis chapter 3? Verse 1, we see that the serpent, who was more crafty than other beasts of the field, approached Eve to tempt her concerning this very command of God. Now, who is this serpent? Now, the immediate text doesn't tell us any kind of identification, but later in Scriptures, we have plain revelation as to who this serpent is. Revelation 12 and verse 9 describes him. The Bible says, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So when you see this serpent in the text, you understand that Satan himself has taken on the incarnation of a serpent 
in order to communicate and deceive Eve. You know what this shows us? It shows us that evil is already in existence through Satan. And his goal is to bring that into the realm of humanity. Into the realm of humanity. And so to do so, what does he do? He tempts Eve, as you read and study this passage. I'm not going to dissect the temptation. There's a whole other message just in these first few verses. But in short... Satan approaches Eve, and he plants in her the seeds of doubt concerning what God had said. He starts with the question, did God really say that? Did God really say that you can't eat of this tree? And he adds and dilutes the word of God as he comes through this. But all this leads into, really, an outright lie about God's word. What Satan tell her? You're not going to die. That's an outright lie. You're not going to die if you take of this fruit. In fact, if you take of this fruit, you're just going to be like God himself. That's why God doesn't want you to have it. Satan is framing God to be the bad guy and diluting the pure word of God that was given to Adam and Eve about this command. And may I say to you that Satan is doing the same thing today. One of, these are the tactics that he continues to reuse. He just repackages them because humanity keeps falling for them. He dilutes the word of God, ultimately to bring deception about the word of, deception about the word of God so that man will be deceived and stay deceived in that state. So as you come through this text, little by little, the words of the serpent infiltrate the mind of Eve until we see her response in verse 6. Verse 6, what do we read? We read that the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was the delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, and she took of its fruit and ate. She took of its fruit and ate. You understand, at this very moment, at this very moment, Eve has forsaken her God for the word of Satan. Eve has forsaken her creator, her God, on behalf of Satan and his lie. On behalf of him at this very moment. But guess what? She's not alone in this, is she? I find this fascinating. You look at who's there with Eve we find in this text that she also gave to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Both Eve and Adam have decided to rebel against their God by taking of the forbidden fruit. I was reading a little story, and this you may find this funny, you may not. There's a man once told his friend he never lets his wife choose where to eat. You know where this is going, right? The friend asked, why not? He said, because when the first man let his wife choose what to eat, it doomed all of humanity. (laughs) He's taking that out of context. I say that to give you wisdom, husbands. Let your wife choose where to eat and go eat with her. (laughs) Enjoy a date. But when we look at Eve in the very beginning, what's the result? In verse 7, we read that the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew 
that they were naked. They didn't know that beforehand, but now they know that they're naked. They fall into sin, and the fall of sin unto sin is now in full effect. Why? Because of what Adam and Eve has done here. Because of what Adam and Eve has done, all of mankind has now fallen into sin. Paul sums it up this way in Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and what? Fell or fallen short of the glory of God. What is the glory of God by which we have fallen from? It was a state of righteousness and perfection and innocence. That is entirely foreign to all of humanity now. Entirely foreign to humanity. We have all fallen in sin. And man now is incapable of being upright like he was in the beginning. No man can undo his fallen sinful nature. Which leads me to letter B this morning. Not only do we see that mankind is fallen in his sin, but mankind is also found in his sin. What do you mean he's found in his sin? What I mean by that is that he can't escape it and he can't hide from it. When Adam and Eve sinned, what did they do? Did they run to embrace the Lord and say, Oh, Lord, you know, we messed up over here, but we're glad to see you. We're glad to see you. We're glad you've come to see us. Not even close. In verse 8, what do we read? They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The man and his wife did what? They hid themselves. They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now, can you imagine just a moment the very fact that the Lord Himself is walking into the garden where they are. His presence in some kind of a tangible way, manifestation, is coming into the garden to fellowship and to commune with them. And Adam and Eve, Eve, they had known that fellowship and enjoyed that communion without any kind of fear or guilt or shame. But now something is drastically different. This is not like it was before. All those other times, however much or however long we, we don't know, this is not the same this time around when the Lord comes into the garden. Adam and Eve are afraid of the presence of God. Adam and Eve are ashamed before the presence of God. Adam and Eve try to hide themselves from the presence of God. Why? Because now they know something they did not know before, and they have done something they've never done before. They have broken His command, His law. They are struck with a conscience of guilt and shame. And such is the case for all of us. You know, as a child, there were times when I knew I'd disobeyed and done something wrong. Most of the time, I'd just hope mom and dad wouldn't find out. As kids, you'd try your best to hide it, right? I'd just go up to my room. But then I'd hear that voice. Joseph! You know what that meant? They found out. I'd try to act like I didn't hear or hear him. Doesn't work. They would find out. They would know. And I'd have to give some kind of explanation. Depending on how bad it was, what I broke or what I did, might get punished. Might get a stern warning. But mom used to always quote me this verse. 
very comforting verse to me as a child. Numbers 32, 23. Think about Israel in the wilderness. God says, but if you will not do so, behold, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. Your sin will find you out. You can't escape your sin. You can't hide your sin. You can't sweep it under the rug and hope that it never gets cleaned or noticed. And here's where we see the main question for the whole message in verse 9. The Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? Where are you, Adam? Wait a minute. Hold up. Doesn't God know all things? We do believe in the omniscience of God. That means there's nothing outside of His knowledge. He knows everything. He knows my thoughts. He knows what I'm going to do tomorrow, ten years from now. He'll know what I'll be thinking on this exact day. There's not anything outside of the knowledge of God. You can't escape the knowledge of God. So doesn't God already know where Adam and Eve are? Of course He does. This is one of the the character attributes of God's nature, His omniscience, that He knows all things. God said to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 23, 24, He said, Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord. Do not I fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. He fills all places. So why then does God ask this question to Adam? Where are you? It is not that God needed to know where Adam was, but that Adam needed to know where Adam was. Adam needed to know where Adam was. You see, Adam was no longer where he once was with God. He in his sin has been separated from the God he was once close to. And though Adam was hidden, he wasn't truly hidden. He is found in his sin by the omniscient God who made him. And God holds Adam directly accountable for this sin, even though it was Eve who's the first one who took the fruit and ate it. Both the man and you here, reading from some notes that I read upon, are singular in the Hebrew. And so God is confronting Adam first, holding him primarily responsible for what happened as the one who is the representative or the head of the husband and wife relationship, which is established before the fall. It's not new news that the husband's the head of the home. That goes all the way back to Genesis. But isn't it revealing, though, as we read the text in verse 6 that we see Adam was with her there at the temptation, there as she takes the fruit. Do you know what we find with Adam? Adam fails in his first duty. Adam fails to protect his wife from this intruder. What was part of Adam's commission in the garden? It was to till it or work it, but also what? To keep it. To guard it. Adam fails in the basic responsibility God gave him to do. And by means of that failure, his wife gives in to this sin, and Adam is standing there with her, watching it all happen. Not only does he just watch it happen, he takes part in it. 
He's listening to the serpent too. He takes part in it. And you understand, Adam, he is the federal head of all humanity. And by this truth, his sin that brought depravity and death and damnation and destruction is passed on to all the others because we have inherited the very nature that he had through birth. Romans 5.12, I repeat this over and over again. Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. You see, Adam's guilt and shame drove him to run and hide from God's presence. But let me point something out to you. Isn't that the same response from the rest of mankind today? It is. Why does man hide himself from God? Why does man not run after God seeking him? Let me ask you, church, why is this place not packed to the brim? Because in this place, the truth of God's holy nature and our sinful nature is preached. Man does not like that in his natural state. In his natural state. Consider that, friend. Why is it that no one seeks after God? You think about what we're offering here. We preach eternal life to those who repent and believe. Yet the church houses are avoided by the masses. This all comes down to their inherent nature that runs from God. They do not seek God for the same reason that a thief does not seek the police to confess his crime. He's guilty and there's punishment with the guilt. Man's sinful nature runs from God because God is holy. And His righteousness convicts and condemns sinners in their guilt. Paul says this of the nature of man in Romans 3, 10 and 11. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one does what? Seeks for God. No one seeks for God. You see this. Now, there may be some that appear to seek for God. Many people who appear to seek for God seek Him for the wrong motives. They just want something out of Him, whether it's prosperity gospel or something of that nature. But then there are those who genuinely are seeking Him, and the reason they are is because God has already first sought them, worked upon them through His gospel, through His word. You see, this is the reason that many reject the Bible. It is God's voice exposing the sin of man. E. Paul Harvey said this, Men do not reject the Bible because it contradicts itself, but because it contradicts them. That is the truth. Oh, the Bible's full of contradictions. That's the easy way out of facing up to reality. It's not full of contradictions. And so understand that it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how much we think we can hide or run from God's holy truth. He is inescapable, friend. Proverbs 15, 3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. When you think you're hidden and quiet and, and set apart and you're doing evil, you understand you're not alone. You may think you're alone, getting away with something, but you're not. The eyes of the Lord pierce through even the very heart of your soul. Which brings me to number two. Notice with me, number two, the shame of mankind. The shame of mankind. We see the sin, but now we see the shame. I want to point out two things about this. The first shame here is that mankind cannot cover his sin from God. 
He, he can't make up for it. <clears throat> he can't sweep it under the rug. He can't do something to cover it up. When Adam and Eve realized they had sinned and were naked, what did they do in verse 7? The Bible tells us, they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin cloths or aprons. Why did they do that? Well, one, they saw their nakedness. They knew, well, we need to cover up. That's part of it. But their cover-up was not only a means of covering their nakedness, but was an attempt to ultimately just cover up their sin. It serves as a bigger picture to the problem with humanity. You see, when man realizes his sin, if he doesn't just deny it or hide it, try to hide it from God, he'll try to cover it in some way. This is what I call fig leafology. Fig leafology. What is this unique theological term that I should probably copyright? Maybe I stole it from somebody else. I don't know. This is the most common false thinking in the religious world. It's the thinking that many people have that by their good works, by their religious activity, by their church membership or worship or attendance or their baptism, their prayer, their communion, you name it, that somehow something of them will cover the sins with the good that they do. You understand, by coming to church, you don't gain brownie points with God. That's not, that doesn't even exist. It doesn't work. Romans 3.20. Paul says, For by the works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So, so you understand, by the works of the law, by the works of righteousness... No one can be justified in the sight of God who is holy. You see, the good that we may claim does not erase the bad. The bad's still there. You've got to be accountable for it, right? God must judge all sin regardless of how little or much we think it is. If he didn't, he would contradict his very own righteous character, which is an impossibility. He's a righteous judge. And I want to let you in on a little truth about the good things that we think that we can do. The truth is about the good things that man thinks he can do is that even those good things aren't really good at all. Listen to the scriptures. This ain't just me up here babbling. Listen to the word of the living God. Isaiah 64, 6. The Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet writes, We have all become like one who is unclean. And notice this statement. All our righteous deeds are like a polluted we all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. You understand these righteous deeds, he mentions, are those good things that we think we do. And what's God say of those? He says they're like a polluted garment, a filthy rag. You see, the problem is that since our sinful nature is inherent to us, even those good things that we deem good are not good in the eyes of God. It's like trying to clean the floors with a muddy mop. That ain't going to clean the floors, is it? There's an earlier problem than the dirty floor. Psalm 53, 3. David says, they have all fallen away. They together have become corrupt. Look at this statement. There is none who does good. Not even one. That puts all of us in the same boat, doesn't it? We're all in the same sinful boat, sinking together. We need to be rescued. We need to be saved, friend. And so what does he do? Understand that they sew fig leaves together to try and cover up 
their sins. And that does not work. We need God's holy voice of conviction to open our eyes to see this reality. John Calvin comments here and says, The difference between good and evil is engraven on the hearts of all, as Paul teaches in Romans 2.15. But all bury in disgrace of their vices under the flimsy leaves till God by His voice strikes inwardly their consciences. Say, why is it so important to recognize this truth? Why, Why must we see that our fig leaves will not hide our sins? Because if we live deceived in this way, friend... You're going to face God on judgment day to a rude awakening in which you're accountable for every sin you've ever committed before Him. And I don't want that for you. I would be treacherous to not tell you the truth about your own sinful nature. That'd be like a doctor refusing to tell someone they've got cancer just because he doesn't want to give them the bad news. We need the bad news before we can have the good news. Here's the reality. Ecclesiastes 12, 14. God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And so you understand that man here, mankind, he cannot cover his sin from God, but notice with me letter B. Here's another thing he tries. His shame, mankind cannot blame his sin on others. He can't play the blame game. You see, God's going to address their fig, fig leaf issue shortly, but what do we see happened in the next Next uh, part of this saga of shame in them. Verse 11, the Lord asked Adam, Who told you that you are naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Once again, friend, God knows the answer. He's questioning Adam, driving the reality home to his heart. But it's interesting that even here, Adam is still avoiding his own guilt, isn't he? you notice that instead of saying, yes, Lord, I, I took the forbidden fruit and I'm guilty. He doesn't confess that. He doesn't say that. What's he do? In verse 12, he says, the woman that you gave to be with me, she gave me of the fruit of the tree and I ate. What's Adam doing here? He's throwing his wife under the bus. Throwing his wife under the bus. He's not just throwing the, his wife under the bus. He's refusing to take accountability for himself, but he ultimately, here's the, here's, the, here's the depraved nature here that you see. He ultimately is accusing God for what has happened in this situation. He is accusing his creator. What does he say? The woman that you gave me, gave me this fruit and I ate. How treacherous this statement is. Calvin again comments here, and I share it with you because I think he words it well. Yet just as if conscious of no evil, talking of Adam, he put his wife as the guilty party in his place. Therefore I have eaten, he says, because he gave, she gave. And not content with this, he brings at the same time an accusation against God, objecting that the wife who had brought ruin upon him had been given by God. This is a treacherous thing, to accuse God of the sin that he has committed. Well, the temptation did not come from God, it came from Satan. And we read and know this from James 1.13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted of the evil. And he himself tempts no one. You cannot blame God. 
you really can't even blame the devil either. You ever heard the saying, oh, the devil made me do it? No, he didn't. You did it. He might have tempted you, but you did it. The devil doesn't make you do anything. You did it. We see the depths of sin flowing from Adam's lips. But we see in verse 13 the, with Eve's response. Notice what she says. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what have you done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Now, Eve doesn't accuse God as Adam did, but neither is she fully owning up to her guilt. She also plays the blame game. Blaming the serpent. The devil made me do it. You see, mankind can deny his sin, blame his sin, or he can own up and acknowledge his sin. We very rarely want to own up and acknowledge our sin, do we? Whenever there's any kind of scuffle in the other room, we usually have to go in there and sort out what's going on. If you if you have kids, you understand what I'm saying. And usually when you go to sort it out, what do you find? This one is blaming this one. And this one is blaming this one. Even at such a young age, their nature is to play the blame game. They don't want to be guilty. They don't want to be the one that might be punished for their iniquity, right? You see, the efforts of Adam and Eve here to conceal their sin, they only expose their sin even more. Their own words betray them. That brings us to the opening question for Adam in this text, and he asks it to him, and it's a question to us. God asks him, where are you, Adam? Where is Adam now? Adam is lost in sin, without excuse, separated from his holy God. He is worthy of the punishment that God said would follow their sin. Death was now a reality for them. Spiritual death has entered the human heart. Physical death is now the end of their life in this world, and eternal death is the ultimate end for sin's punishment beyond the grave. You understand that this is the truth for every man and woman who is lost in their sin. The question God asks to Adam is the question that he asks to all of us today, where are you? Where are you? Well, let me get you the good news now. I've given you a lot of bad news, haven't I? Get to the good stuff. Number three, I want you to see through this passage and really the whole picture of the Bible, we see the salvation of man. We see his sin. We see his shame. Oh, but praise God for this. There is salvation that God has given man. And I want to point out three quick things. I want you to see the first thing here is that God, God provided a substitution. In this very passage. See, while God is holy and just, demanding righteous judgment on all sin, He also is loving and gracious and merciful. And it is only for this reason that there is any hope of salvation for such sinful beings as we are. In this passage, we have a great action from the Lord on behalf of Adam and Eve that serves as a picture of the bigger truth of salvation. You remember what Adam and Eve did to cover their nakedness or to cover their sin? They used fig leaves. I told you I'd come back to this. They represented their own good works as a means of covering their sins. But that would not pass God's demands, would it? Instead, we see something fascinating happening in Genesis 3. Come down with me to verse 21. As you read verse 16 through 19, you read about God's declaration of what the curse would bring on their physical lives. 
But in verse 21, we notice something significant. The Bible says, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. You say, well, why is that significant? The fig leaves were covering their nakedness. Why couldn't that be good enough? Think for a moment, just, just on this passage. Where do skins come from? They come from animals, don't they? What is the only way in which you can wear animal skins as a covering? The animal must be killed and skinned. What are we seeing here? We're seeing the very first example of death in a world that did not know death beforehand. You understand that Adam and Eve had no clue what death really was. They hadn't seen it before, right? God told them, you're going to surely die. They're worthy of death. But instead, what do we see here? We see an animal dying. God slaying an animal. They have never seen death before. And now they are seeing it firsthand for the first time. The blood of this innocent animal being shed and its life coming to an end. And this is happening on behalf of them and because of them. Because of them. You see, this would become the pattern throughout the Old Testament as a temporary means of covering sin. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 9.22, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. People claim that Christianity is a bloody religion. Yes, it is. Lots of bloodshed in the Old Testament. Animals over and over were shed their blood as a temporary covering for sinners. But none of those things were good enough to permanently take away sin, as we'll see in just a moment. Because there is no way salvation without death and without blood being offered. That was God's demand. And so this animal being sacrificed serves as an object lesson for Adam and for us. He now knew exactly what he actually deserved. Now he would see a substitution is required. And whose idea was it to take the animal and slay it? God's. Who provided the animal to be slain? God. Who shed the blood of the animal? God. Who clothed Adam and Eve with these new garments? God did. You know what that's pointing to us in the very beginning? Salvation is of God alone. Not us. It's all of Him. It's all of Him. So God provides this substitution that points them to a, a better one to come. And notice with me, letter B, this morning, that not only did God provide a substitution, God in this text also, He promised a Savior. He promises here a Savior who would save sinners from their sinfulness, the death they deserve. What Adam and Eve learn here in the garden is a gospel message. God gives this promise of a coming Savior in verse 15. Verse 14 and 15, He talks to the serpent and gives a curse to the serpent. But in verse 15, I want you to see this. God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You know what this text is? This is the very first 
prophecy of the Savior who was to come. The very first one. There's hundreds of them in the Old Testament, but this is the first one. And it is a specific prophecy. How do we see the Savior here? God pronounces that there would be enmity between Satan and the offspring of the woman. That warfare is in ongoing through all of humanity, of course. Satan hates humanity. But there is a specific person in mind here. A specific offspring of the woman that would one day come into this world and crush the head of the serpent. Though his heel would be bruised. That person, friend, is none other than Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. We read later in history of his promised arrival becoming a reality through the Virgin Mary. In Matthew chapter number 1, we read, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Why would this man, why would this man be the Savior because of who he is? He's God with us. He's not just another man with the nature of Adam. He is God with us. He is God in flesh. That is the importance of the virgin birth. Because he did not take on the nature of Adam. And so the day Christ began his ministry, that would lead to his triumph over sin, death, and Satan. As John the Baptist proclaimed on that day in John 1.29, he points the people to Jesus and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. This is him. The one spoken of long ago. Jesus, the Lamb of God. Jesus came into the world to be the ultimate and final sacrifice for sins. Why did He do that? Because the blood and death of animals weren't good enough to completely and permanently wash away our sin. Sin was committed by man and sin had to be atoned by man. And thus, Hebrews says, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God. Now, how does this connect with the prophecy in Genesis? You notice that God says to Satan, he will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. If you go to Hebrews 2 and verse 14 through 15, I won't read it for time's sake, but this Jesus who came, he came to do something specific mentioned in this verse. It says that he came to destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, And he has won the victory to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And here's the truth I want you to see, Christian. That because of Christ and what he's done, what we gain in Christ is far better than all that we lost in Adam. Jesus has worked towards us in an abundant way beyond our imagination. What we gain in Christ is far greater than what we lost in Adam. Which brings me to the last point. I want you to see that God pursues sinners. You see, God has promised and provided the substitution to save sinners. It's seen in Genesis. 
But it is not enough just to know the facts about what Jesus did. There are many people who know, yes, I know Jesus died on the cross, but they're not real Christians. What's the difference? The difference is whether one truly believes or not. Whether they have been born again or not. You see, the message of Christ's redemptive work must be believed wholeheartedly. But in order for anyone to believe, they must first see their own sinfulness for what it truly is and Christ for who He truly is. But because of our sin, guess what? We're naturally blind to that truth. We run from that truth. We don't want to hear that truth. Just like Adam. But God, by His grace, calls out His people drawing them out of their sin and shame unto salvation through His Word, through the Gospel and the power of the Spirit. Jesus said in John 6, No one can come to Me unless the Father who has sent Me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. The Father draws sinners through His Word and the Spirit. Calls them by name. Convicts them of their sinfulness and their need of Christ, friend. And here's what I point to you today. If you today see your own sin before God and your own need of Christ, that He's the only hope of salvation, my call to you today is to repent and believe on Him. Repent and believe on Him. Acknowledge your sin for what it is. And look into Christ, the crucified Lamb and risen Lord, who alone is salvation for you. The jailer who was at his end of his rope in his life came in trembling before Paul and Silas. And he asked them, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And guess what he told them? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be saved. And once you truly believe on Christ, you will know that right then that you are where you ought to be with God. So the question here is for all of us today, where are you? Where are you, Adam? That was the question of Adam. But where are you? Put your name there. Where are you? Where are you before God today? You can't play hide and seek with him. You're already fallen in sin. You're found in sin. You, you're, you're in your shame. You try to use your fig leaves and, and try to blame. None of that works. You cannot hide it from God. You are found. Where are you with God today? Have you trusted in Jesus alone for your salvation? If you have, rejoice in all that you have in Christ. You're not clothed with fig leaves anymore. You're clothed in His righteousness. You're justified before God. My friend, today, if you're not clothed in Christ, if you've never believed on Him truly in your heart, you've not been born again, you're clothed in your own fig leaves, and those aren't going to stand the test. Today, believe on Him. Trust in Him alone be saved from your sins by faith. Let's stand to our feet as we have a closing song. Father in heaven, we bow before you this morning so thankful, Lord, for your word. Thank you, Father, for revealing to us the origin of where we come from, but also the origin of our sinful nature. The account of Adam and Eve and being able to see have answers for why it is that this world is so sinful and why we individually are so sinful. Lord, but you don't only put out our sin, point out our sin and show us where we are in that fashion, but you point us to where we need to be. We must have Christ or we have no hope. I don't know the hearts of the people here today. All I know is your word is true. 
pray that you would convict and draw, bring sinners to salvation, and cause your people who do know you to rejoice in the wonder of your grace upon us. We pray it in Jesus' name.